at some time that the market and our financial performance will dictate that to build some of those basics with the right people, with the systems and so on. But I'm looking for post-IPO, how do I get ready for being able to, to do that monthly and quarterly cadence that you require, not just on a financial side, but on the people sides. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Leaders of Minor Finance. My name is Ben Marie, and I'd like to welcome Wayne Kimber, CFO of Symphony AI. Wayne, welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. Nice to be here. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, great to have you here. Let's start out. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Symphony AI. My name is Wayne Kimber. I'm the CFO of Symphony AI. We're a AI company focused on delivering AI technology to key vertical industries. Primarily focused at the moment on retail, industrial, media, and fintech. We just announced an acquisition on Tuesday. We're going to buy the kind of transaction monitoring business from BAE, called Net Reveal, based in the UK. So we're very excited about that opportunity to add more vertical expertise in the fintech area to Symphony AI. That will help accelerate our growth over the time frame. We're approximately about 2,000 employees spread around the world, up to the geographically dispersed in about 22 countries at the moment. And as I said, we, we focus on our differentiation, our strategy is focusing on providing deep sector expertise on top of an AI platform. It sounds great. So 2,000 employees, so pretty good sized company. So we start the show by talking a little finance and accounting shop. So Symphony A, about 2,000 employees, so large org. Tell us a little bit about the departments that roll up to you as CFO. So as CFO, I have core accounting, as I would call it, doing revenue recognition, order to cash, et cetera, equity stock administration, payroll, accounts payable, that ultimately report up to me via my worldwide controller. And we have a BU-based structure in that I we with to support those verticals because we have those reach the verticals as well as the overlying CEO Sanjay. And so I have teams embedded in those. BUs who do your CFOs reporting to me and the teams who do a lot of accounting for them and then with data blind. And then I have FPNA worldwide and then with the FPNA teams that are again embedded at the BUs to provide that BU specific knowledge that is needed to be able to support those businesses. And then in addition, I have facilities and legal, although that will change when we hire general counsel and some of the basic administrative type operations. Yeah, and I'm glad you... Oh, sorry, go on. And, you know, investor relations, debt equity raising, treasury, that sort of stuff. Yeah, wide range of departments there. And I'm glad you mentioned that BU structure, kind of the corporate BU, because you see that in larger orgs where you have embedded teams, you know, especially traditionally, say, FP&A embedded in those business units Mm -hmm. supporting those leaders. So really interesting structure with that. How how big is your overall team size, you know, for for the staff and, and all those departments? Oh, 
New Orleans in the mid-50s. And again, it spread geographically in the United States, large, large group in Bangalore and in Paris. And that, again, that covers both FPNA and the accounting team. Yeah. Okay. So about 50 staff, global, mm-hmm. US based, Paris and Bangalore, and maybe some other locations. But moving on to board reporting, right? Mm-hmm. Key component of any CFO's duties. So tell us, what are those important numbers that you report to the board that everybody wants to know about? Well, you had the basic PL, balance sheet, cash flow. We're ultimately we're owned by Ramesh Rawani. Ramesh is very focused on EBITDA as an investor. Historically, we've been very successful with ensuring EBITDA. So we do a lot of focus on that. We're, our model isn't to burn a lot of money and you know, spend $2 for every $1 revenue growth. We're a bit more value-based. So in addition to, to those, a lot of focus on bookings for SaaS managed services, which is recurring services that ongoing because we're again our focus on those key verticals. We find that we need to provide managed services to the our customers so that they can drive the best value out of the AI platform. Again, part of our differentiating strategy is we're not just providing a platform and then letting them figure out what works. You know, we're trying to build the building blocks of people and the software, the tech stack, so then they can start getting the data that really helps drive their business. So as a primarily subscription software-based company, the overall key metrics are ARR, gross and net renewal rates, and you know, gross margin, but whether it be software or services, utilization rates and average billing hour, hourly rates for services, some of the other key focuses. We're also focused on headcount and revenue per headcount. It's a slightly old-fashioned metric, but you know, from our again, if you're trying to drive to EBITDA, one of the best ways is to look at the revenue per headcount and try to grow that over time. Is it is another way of indicating whether you're going to get that EBITDA performance that you want over the long term? So, not surprising, a, a, a company of your size, pretty wide range of metrics from your your core fundamentals, financials, EBITDA always of big focus and then some of those you know traditional SaaS metrics and then plus revenue per FT because yeah are you scalable is the organization organization scaling in the right way mm-hmm. and then with an org of that size 2000 employees global structure what's some of the tool systems that you're using in the CFO tech stack you know, the tech stack starts with obviously a Salesforce automation tool where, you know, to be able to, to track the opportunities and the pipe and do the pipeline dynamics as to, you know, coverage and close rates and, you know, looking at the, how the commit numbers change over time from the CROs or the various BUs. And that we try to interface, you know, very, again, some of the BUs have some autonomy as to the level of integration that's required. We'll be consolidating that more and more as each of them grow. We kind of have like a small, medium, and large type idea. You know, we're not going to make the small BU use the same, all the tech data requirements that a big BU might have. So then, you know, ERP system with a professional services automation tool, with an FP&A tool on, on top. And, and then going through the customer relations management. And then we have auxiliary things like ShareWorks for stock programs administration, uh-huh. uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're, one of the next phases will be, again, as we build those basic things of the, of the people and the, and the kind of infrastructural building blocks, you know, it cuts some ideas as to how to use AI ourselves in 
the finance area, which I've used in my past lives at Malwarebytes and Cloudera to, to help value that we'll, we'll put in place when we have the appropriate building blocks. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, a big set of tools, you know, with that scale and a global scale as well. And, you know, you mentioned Malwarebytes and we'll talk about your finance and accounting journey here. Some some nice brand names on your resume. So tell us a little bit about yeah your journey in finance accounting. What were those key pivot points, decisions, moments, or even some mistakes that you learned from that we could all learn from as you as you progressed in, in finance and accounting? I look at my career as in two parts. There's my American career, I'm in the United States in 98, and there's my career before that. And they are quite distinctly different, you know, up till when I was working in New Zealand and Hong Kong and England, it was all, you know, accounting firm, audit tech-focused acquisition M&A type work. I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to move to the United States in 98 to work for, and was here, therefore, during the dot-com and, you know, craziness of time with lots of IPOs and acquisitions. And really, the the opportunities you get in Silicon Valley is so much broader than I could ever got if I stayed in New Zealand or even if I had lived in the UK and stayed there, which, you know, was, I admit. So, and so I think that's one of the big things. I think people in the United States, you know, can't, you know, there are so many opportunities here to get exposure that you can't do anywhere else, especially in the in Silicon Valley and the, and the opportunities in tech that that's really helped me. So I think that's one, you know, big decision in my career was to decide to move to the States. I think the other kind of big one, you know, I think maybe I stayed there too long in the accounting firm world. I should, you know, I left as a senior manager when I didn't want to do the partnership track. I think, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have left earlier, but then that would have been before I moved to the United States. So I think then the, the next thing is picking the right, then I left one of the big four accounting firms, went to Ariba. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was, if any one decision I could put that was a pivot in my career, it was a decision to do that. The CFO at Reber was looking for a director of internal audit. I didn't want to do internal audit. And he said, Wayne, come work for me. Trust me, I'll get you the experience you want to grow your career. And, and I took him at his word and I can, and ended up working for him at two companies for a total of 12 or 13 years. So I think that for me, that kind of my own kind of people journey, that decision to do that and to trust somebody that they would mentor me was a, was a huge thing in my career because then at Ariba, I did two years internal audit and I was controller and then I was VP of finance. And so all with that same CFO who mentored me and helped build me. And I, one of the things I try and do now is it's actually one of the more enjoyable parts of the job is if you can mentor and grow people and maybe there'll be a CFO again or a VP of control and you grow with them and they grow with you. So I like that. That's kind of one of the intangibles of the job that I think was was important for me. So then I went to Ariba and then I wanted to do, they were already public and I wanted to do an IPO. So I went to Guidewire, worked for another great CFO, and I've been very lucky to have had great CFOs supporting me all during my career. And we took Guidewire public in 2012. And then in 2013, the CFO at Ariba calls me up and says, Wayne, I've just become CFO at Cloudera. You've got to come work for me at Cloudera, which I did. It and you know, worked from, for him from 2013 through to 2019. And that was a, a, a rocket ship. I think when I joined, the revenue was $40 million and we were on QuickBooks and the accounting team was about five or six. And by the time we left, you know, you know post-merger with Hortonworks, you know, it was about $800 million of revenue and, you know, 
I think we were in 35 countries and the accounting team was, you know, again, pre, pre the merger was in the 70s and obviously with the merger grew and then contracted as we got the synergies out of the transaction. Yeah. So I think we'll, we can talk about that one a bit more. And then I, I decided to move to Malwarebytes and the people, some people said, well, Wayne, why did you do Malwarebytes? I was interested in the idea of, I'd always worked in enterprise software and I was interested in the idea of working for a B2C. And, you know, some people when I talk to them say, well, Wayne, that's country. Most B2C want to move to enterprise. But, you know, what I got out of that experience, apart from, again, working for Tom Fox, who's another great CFO, I'd recommend you, you talk to someday, was B2C, you've got to handle volume. And your systems and your processes, your stack and your people, you have to do volume. You're doing tens of thousands of transactions a day or a week. So versus an enterprise sale, you know, we, you know, we have you know, less than 2,000 customers. So completely different to scale and the things and the processes that you need when you're dealing with multiple thousands of transactions, tens of thousands of transactions a day is completely different to when you have 2,000 customers and maybe you're billing them once a month, once a quarter, once a year, completely different scale and so on to be able to handle. So that's what I got out of that. So I'm not afraid of scale and size. Then last year, the opportunity to be CFO came and, and uh, you know, I decided that it was a great opportunity to come work for Ramesh, an amazing entrepreneur with an amazing track record over the years. And then with Sanjay as the CEO at Symphony AI to kind of continue to build Symphony and to continue to integrate the back office, but also build the people, build the tech stack, and then kind of build those blocks in to kind of then, I think, have a use it. And also, very instead of AI, it's kind of, again, you're back to enterprise, but cutting edge, just like Chad Aaron Hoop was back 10 years ago, to kind of look at something. And AI means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I thought it'd be an exciting potential journey to do with, with uh, a very successful person, a really smart, probably the smartest man I've ever met, uh, or two in Sanjay and Ramesh. Yeah, a lot of I've been to, we'll talk about going public on Cloud Air in a second, but love that where you know, kind of lesson, learning lesson that you took a position that you really didn't want, you know, maybe you would never apply to, but you trusted mm-hmm. the CFO who you'd work for, who would become your mentor, you know, so that's yeah, a great, great learning lesson out there that maybe it will lead to something, you know, a, a different role or something better after that. So great, great point. I love the B2C point. We could probably talk to hours about that, you know, mm-hmm. versus, you know, enterprise invoicing, maybe manually invoice the customer, but say I've got to invoice 10,000 or build 10,000 customers a month. It's a little different process. You know, so mm-hmm. great, great point there, but tell us going public. When you think about going public, you know, what just pops to mind, you know, mm-hmm. that others can learn from listening to this podcast where it's like, oh boy, I wish I'd known this, or this was a ton of work. You know, anything that just pops to mind about going to, about going public. You know, I've been lucky enough to do it twice in the company and then multiple times supporting it when I was at a big four accounting firm. I think, you know, one thing is remember the actual IPO is, is it's just a, is a process and don't be afraid of that process. You, you, can, you will engage with very, you know, reputable professional accounting firms who can support you. You will engage with lawyers and bankers who do this process every day. Uh-huh. That's their life. They will take you through that process. What is, to my mind, more important, you know, is, is, is not the S1 that, and, the, 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 you know, and, it, and it's true that the IPO is just a step on the journey. The, the real journey is to put the 
put the people in place, put the infrastructure in place, and, and, and the business and the technology and the go-to-market strategy that will resonate. Because, you know, you can be ready in the back office, but if the go-to-market strategy and the product and the sales isn't working, it doesn't matter if you have the best, you know, ERP, FP&A tools fully integrated and you have all the best KPI reporting. So, you know, while that's important, it's really part of that building block of it. And you've got to, as CFO, learn to understand the business and what's driving it, the people getting the blocks, the data, so that then you can use hopefully AI to to kind of understand the message and then go out to the market. It's the IPO is a story, but it's not it's not spinning a story. You if you have those base building blocks, then you can articulate the vision and and so on. So I think that's the more important thing than the actual S1. And then the other thing is once the, those very smart professionals who support you in the S1 finish, they go off, and then you've got the thing of you know, delivering what you're told to in the market on the, on the roadshows and making sure you can meet compliance to the socks and all those things. Those aspects are the harder things that require more time and focus than the actual you know, IPO process with them filing an S1 in a roadshow. So that, that's kind of what I've learned. And, and what I'm trying to build here at Symphony, because, you know, like everything would say, ultimate goal would be a liquidity event and predetermined. Who, at some time that the market and our financial performance will dictate, that to build some of those basics with the right people, with the systems and so on. But I'm looking for post-IPO. How do I get ready for being able to, to do that monthly and quarterly cadence that you require not just on the financial side, but on the people side, supporting them as they grow and they learn for that, that kind of move from being a private to a public company. And, and again, making sure that you know the business well enough so you're not going to get surprised. Yeah, I love that. You know, because you, like you said, you can engage an advisor to help, to help you. They do it day in and day out. You can get the back office ready, but right, you still need to execute on your go-to-market strategy, your product you know, hitting those revenue targets. So the great point there is I love that. And then also Cloudera, you know, mentioned going from 40 million up to 800 million rocket ship, you know, so how, how do you hold on to that rocket ship? Like how far ahead do you have to think, you know, to be able to have the infrastructure for your teams to scale with the company? And then as a leader, you also, right, have to scale as a company to be able to manage, say, an $800 million business. So any any lessons learned from, from that Cloudera experience? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting with my Cloudera experience, say, it's slightly different at Symphony, is, you know, signing for QuickBox sounds daunting, but it's actually great because you've got a green field. You can do it. And I had lucky enough with my past experience at Guardwire and Ariba and pull together the, the right team of people to kind of say, here's what we want to build. And we were funded enough that we could go build it. So we, we did a lot of things with that ERP to, and, you know, the technology that's available to automate the, or the cash process as much as possible to, you know, my ARR report, my annual return revenue report was a report that took 10 minutes out of, out of the ERP to do, not something that an analyst was sitting money today. So we were able, knowing what we needed, because we'd had that experience in the past, to build it. And I was lucky enough, again, to work with CFO who trusted me to build that. And I think that that worked really well. So that was kind of like, almost like first mover advantage, because it was completely greenfield. What I have 
A symphony is not so greenfield in that there are systems in place and they were a little bit down in isolation. And so now I'm working on combining that. We'll be working on combining those in a coherent fashion. And again, as I said, allowing for the different sizes of BUs. If I've got a you know, 50-person incubator BU who's in a startup mode, I don't want to tie them up with all the reporting that I would expect my thousand person BU or the net reveal to do when they come on board. So you've got to balance that off with the ask across it. So that's one thing that's different here at Symphony versus, you know, my past experience. And that's what I'm trying to do now with the team here is kind of look at it and look forward a year, look forward 18 months. So where do I want to be when it regards to that tech stack or the business? And kind of and the people and work back from there as that that vision. And I do find that you, often you have the vision and your you know you how do you execute it? The execution is often harder than the vision. Um, the other thing at, at Cloud Arrow is kind of it was a bit like riding on a horse without a uh, saddle. So you had to kind of learn 80-20 rule, right? 80%, you know, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. If you get to a certain level, then you just have to move on. And it's something I always drive and my my team. You know, accountants by nature don't like making mistakes. That's not their personality. And so I've got to let my team make mistakes. And But I demand that they learn from those mistakes. We all make mistakes. But mistakes I make, what I learn from better than my victory. So as a, as a boss, I, I need to enable them to feel comfortable that they can do that. And often I have my team and they'll come to me with a proposal and they say, "When well, here's one of three options. Here's three options. And I'll say, well, which one do you recommend? What does your gut tell you? Because they'll be right. They just need to be enabled to make those decisions. Well, yeah, a lot of great points there. You know, one greenfield, you can build out your systems, your process, how you see fit. But sometimes, right, you inherit systems and you have mm-hmm. to assess that rip and replace, change things around and work with what you have and then improve it. And then, you know, really great point about business units. And that's an interesting, interesting thing about companies who have that BU structure that you, like you said, you could have BUs who are at startup stage. And I've seen where I've been in that structure where you have business units that are now in more of that mature declining stage. So very mm-hmm. different challenges, opportunities, you know, for all these BUs, because they're not all just say 50 million BUs and, and, and tackling the same challenges along the way. Mm-hmm. No, as I said, we've kind of doing the small, medium and large kind of approach as kind of what we think the stack would be. And the goal is obviously, as they grow, that stack is they're available for them to go into, uh-huh. right? So, you know, we're building, you know, if I'm building my order the cash process, it's going to be able to scale as they scale and they'll be following the, the route that we've already selected with potential and, again, get the synergies of scale and that they're not reinventing the wheel. You know, building automation will work across all of the VUs at the right junction. But if a BU has you know, is going and they first have 25 customers, maybe, you know, manually billing is fine because uh-huh. yeah, they don't need the automation when you've got 25 invoices. Yep. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And then, of course, being in tech, working in AI, you know, before, say even in accounting, right, maybe, hey, we just had a general ledger, right? We cut checks, we get checks, but now the tech stack has evolved mm-hmm. for, you know, the entire world, but especially finance accounting. But what's your experience so far in AI, because now you even see AI coming into the accounting process or finance process. So any any guidance around you know when you know we should look at AI for our company for accounting? Any any thoughts there? I mean, I think 
what AI can be used to kind of try and do analyses that you can't do just based upon core financial data. So yeah, out of my ERP, I can get my aging or I can get my you know rev schedules. I can do you know I can do a lot of that. You know, being able to automate that to, to be able to get your KPIs is important. But you know, at one of the, at my last, one of my last lives, we combined in a in a in a data lake. You know, the the data from the customers on the financial side with their usage metrics from the CRM and their, you know, their kind of billing information or so other, you know, duration and so on, to be able to really analyze the combination of the financial data with the kind of usage data, you know, the software, you know, maybe the banks fixes and, you know, call volumes to really try and correlate, okay, how risky are they from a renewals perspective? Because to be able to, and you can't just do that with your core accounting system, but with an AI or a data lake, you can combine those different data sources and put them together and and, and teach the machine to, to look for those correlations that you wouldn't be able to do between, between some of that. So that's one example of what I've done in the past and, you know, would look to do for, with Symphony in the future is that, is that kind of combining the non-financial data with the financial data in a way that you can then analyze your customer or your product in different ways. I mean, that's where for financing it can could be kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah, great insight there. So Wayne, you know, amazing finance and accounting experience so far, and I know the journey is not over for you. So for the listeners out there, what is one piece of advice that you'd give as kind of the parting advice to those listening right now? It all does start with hiring the right people, right? If, if you, you stand on the shoulders of giants, so hiring the right people, it's an incredibly competitive job market at the moment. So it's a battle to get those, but I, I think hiring the right people and then being prepared to invest in them to grow them. And I, I'm, I'm a benefactor of somebody deciding to do that. And I have people now who are working for me at the third company that followed me. And I'm hoping to continue to grow them. And, you know, one of them started off as a general ledger accountant is now my worldwide controller, right? So, so that's the sort of thing that I find. So if you build those people when they have that experience, then they're going to come follow you and they can help you on that journey of doing those other blocks. So I, I really like that people side of it. It's one of the things that I enjoy. And I think if you can do that, it really helps you because you're not alone. You can't do it by yourself. A CFO, right? Again, you know, in, in, no matter how good you are or force of will you have, you need people. No, yeah, so, all right, that's great. So hire the right people, but also then invest. Once you hire the right people, invest, because as we know, software, it is all about the people and that is our competitive advantage in software and tech. So great advice. So Wayne, great experience so far. Best of luck at Symphony AI and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.